0: So two of you have remembered to remain standing. Did you turn on? Perfect. There you go, buddy. Give a hand to our sound guy. Man, what a guy. What a guy. All right, so our memory verse for this month. Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. Proverbs fifteen thirty. Awesome. You may be seated. Um, if you haven't already grabbed from the back, um, there is a new box for the dwell material for next month's verse. Um, so um, hold on one second. I'm getting word that our live stream isn't working. Ooh, that's right. Okay, hold on. <laughs> you know that awkward moment when uh right in the middle of everything <laughs> your computer stops working? Let's see. This is a great time to pray, (laughs) if you're not praying already. All right, um, so as I was saying, um, if you haven't grabbed out of the box in the back corner there, uh, next month's verse, make sure before you leave, you grab yourself a card, a keychain, and a handful of tattoos, because the longest I've ever made one last is 48 hours. So uh, that might have something to do with the fact that I have my hands in swimming pools all day, but uh, grab a handful, grab a whole stack. So, we are in our fourth week of our Lament series, going through the book of Lamentations. And we've established in this series a number of truths about lament. Uh, First, we learned that lament is a cry to a father that we know is listening. Yeah, buddy. True. True. (laughs) There you go. <laughs> uh, lament is a cry to a father that we know is listening. It is a key component to repentance because it draws you into the light and it draws you out of shame. It is welcoming God fully into the wreckage as you fully own your sin. Um, As it pertains to being sinned against, lament both joins God in judgment over that sin as well as mourning over that sin, and it both calls a sinner to repentance and to freedom while also, at the same time, not denying at all a call for justice. This does not heap shame on a person. Uh, This doesn't rub a person's nose in their sin. But it does call them to see the fullness of their actions so that they can repent and be forgiven by God. Last week we established that lament is also what we do in order to preach the gospel to ourselves. When when we are in that dark cave of sadness, this turns our minds upward. It turns our hearts upward toward the Lord. It calls to mind what is true when we are surrounded by sadness. Lament Trust God to be in charge of vengeance rather than sinking into a revenge mindset. And so today, what we're going to see is that lament is both a mourning and a warning. Lament invites others to see the full damage caused by sin so that they will not make the same mistake. So chapter 1 shows us how to lament and repent of our own sin. Chapter 2 showed us how to lament being sinned against and calling those people to repent. Chapter 3 showed us how to turn our minds upward in the midst of that sin. And this chapter will show us how to use lament as a warning to anyone and everyone who is listening so that they too can be called to repentance before it's too late. Um, In 2004, Sheriff's Deputy Brett King of the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department in Oregon uh, envisioned a new method for fighting drug addiction. Um, According to the newspaper The Oregonian, 27% of bookings into Multnomah County that year were meth-related. It was becoming, in that area, an epidemic. And so Deputy King decided to highlight for the public what kind of damage was done to a body as a result of methamphetamine addiction. Part of the strategy for what he put together came from the fact that mugshots are public record. So anyone can go online and look up someone's mugshot. That is not private information. Once you have a mugshot, that is open to the public. So he removed the step of having people need to search, and he just put side-by-sides of mugshots together. And then he added some video interviews uh, into that. Um, And specifically, he focused on inmates whose bodies, and especially whose faces, had been absolutely wrecked by addictions to crystal meth. And so he called this campaign The Faces of Meth. Um, the presentation featured 59 mugshots. And as soon as he launched this program, he said overnight the phone was ringing off the hook. People calling him and asking him to come and do presentations and, and speak in schools. And that is what he began to do. During this presentation, he talks about the steps that led people eventually down this path to where they're addicted to methamphetamines. And the purpose of this presentation was to scare teenagers away from ever touching it. He explained that meth drives a person crazy. It floods the brain with dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that causes a person to feel pleasure And a tremendous uh, uptick in energy. And the high from methamphetamines lasts for hours, hours on end. And so users will experience hyper real delusions, which causes them to act as if they are living in a completely different reality. Because in their minds, they are. Deputy King was first inspired to start this campaign as he watched a 20-year-old woman in a holding cell shrieking and wrestling with an imaginary demon. He immediately began searching through booking photos and constructing side-by-sides. The damage that crystal meth causes your body, both internally and externally, is shocking. It eats away at the tissue in the brain until the user can no longer feel any pleasure of any kind unless they are high. It also boosts the heart rate and boosts blood pressure, causes overheating in the body, bringing the body temperature upwards of 107 degrees. Eventually, a person no longer craves food. The only thing they crave is another hit of meth. And the way that this affects the brain is that with each hit, the brain is attempting to find homeostasis in its neurotransmitter levels. And so when a hit occurs, it causes an even lower natural dopamine response, which then takes that bell curve even further down. And that requires that every subsequent hit be even more extreme so that the person can continue to feel a high. If they want to continue to af- feel its effects strongly, they have to take more and more and more. And so people will continue chasing high after high after high, taking hit after hit after hit. One user um, in Deputy King's presentation um, testified that during the worst stretch of her addiction, she was awake for 14 consecutive days, two straight weeks without sleep. She said that over the years, with each one of these drug trips, after it was over, she would sleep for 48 straight hours, and it wouldn't matter if someone was jumping up and down on your body, you would not wake up. It was almost as if you were dead. So, you can imagine the kind of effect that this would have on a person's appearance, And so what Deputy King began to do was he began to display the damage visually for people to see, hoping that if people could see the fullness of the damage done by this addiction, that it would save some people from ever going down that path. If people could see how much this ruins you, maybe they won't try it for themselves he said, I feel like teens who are educated with all the facts and given all the information, that will make the right decision. And so he showed them the faces of meth. So let's take a look at a few, shall we? <laughs> oh yes, that is what we'll be doing. So first up is Teresa Baxter. And here is her before picture. Um, this is the woman who testified that she was awake for fourteen consecutive days. Now, only three and a half years later, this is what she looked like. Go ahead and put up that next one. It's Teresa Baxter, three and a half years after her addiction. In three and a half years, she looks as if she is aged thirty years. That is scary. And that is only a a three-and-a-half-year change. Next, in the lineup, we have a transformation that took place over the course of ten years. So, here's the before. We have here a fairly normal-looking person, right? And after ten years, ready for this, my friends? Here is the after. That is after ten years of crystal meth abuse. That is Absolutely terrifying, is it not? Everything about her is completely different. Her skin, her eyes, her teeth. It's terrifying. Here's another that takes place over the course of years. This time, it's seven years. Now, as you're looking at this next picture, I want you to keep in mind that this woman is in her 30s. Okay, So this is not an older woman in either before or after. This is a woman in her 30s. Normal-looking woman. And now here is her after photo, after seven years. Again, still in her 30s. She looks as if she is in her 70s and has been through hell. That is seven years and she's in her 30s. Um, Here's another similar situation. This time in the before picture, the woman is 22 years old. uh, Right around some of your ages here. 22 years old, normal looking girl. And now here she is at age 33. 33 years old. Looks like an entirely different, very old person. But that is the same person at age 33. Now, these are transformations, of course, that have happened over the course of years and years and years. But, lest anybody think that it takes years and years and years for the damage to be done... Uh, let's look at what happens in a very short time. How about one year? So, uh, here is the before picture. Uh, this a completely normal-looking young lady, she looks like your average college student, right? Totally, looking, uh, totally normal-looking person. And now, one year later, after one year of using methamphetamines, this is what she looked like. Um. Now, the last one I'm going to show you will be in reverse order. Uh, This last one wasn't part of Deputy King's presentation, but it's one that you may have seen because it features someone famous. Go ahead and put up the next one there, buddy. Anybody tell me who this is? Anybody know who that is? No? This is an actor named Sean Weiss. Sean Weiss. He is best known for playing Goldberg, the goalie in Mighty Ducks. Mighty Ducks fans, anyone? A bunch of young folks in here. My gosh. Oh my God, I'm old. Uh, go ahead and put up the next one. What he used to look like is, uh, is this guy. When the previous photo was taken, Sean Weiss was 83 pounds. 83 pounds and had just been booked for breaking and entering while under the influence of methamphetamines. And his meth addiction nearly cost him his life. I I did read this week that he has turned his life around, and he's two years sober, and that's awesome, And, and he looks much different now. Okay, So part of this is that in these after photos, you think a person might be ruined forever. But equally compelling is seeing some of these people years after they've gone sober, and they almost look back to normal. Point is, uh, of this whole campaign, Deputy King's strategy was inviting the world to take an unfiltered look at what happens to a person when they give themselves over to this drug. Because if people can see just how much it destroys you, maybe they won't be destroyed too. In a similar way, Lamentations chapter 4 is a hideous before and after. In verse after verse, Jeremiah contrasts for us the way that things used to be versus the way that they are now. And he highlights the reason for why things are the way that they are now, because of the destructive effects, not of a drug, but of the destructive effects of sin. And he's showing this picture to the world like faces of meth, so that perhaps anyone who sees and hears won't make the same mistakes that the Israelites did. In fact, as we'll see, at the end of the chapter, he even points to a specific group of people and tells them, this is your future. This after is in store for you. And so in this, we see that lament is not only mourning sin, it is also a warning against sin. It says to those who are watching, this could be you too. Give yourself to God before it is too late. So, Lamentations chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they're regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now, their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger as he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us in the mountains, they lay in wait for us in the wilderness." The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, He will punish. He will uncover your sins. So imagine, imagine you are standing in the rubble of the Twin Towers on September 12, 2001, the day after the towers fell. Smoke is still rising from the rubble. The air is filled with dust and debris, Chaos and screams and crying still fills your ears. Imagine that this is where you begin to write a poem about the judgment and the faithfulness of God. That is the scene of lamentations. Here again, we note the perspective of the chapter. The perspective in this chapter is one of a storyteller. The perspective is one of an artist. Jeremiah is painting a picture. He is telling a story for others to see and hear. He is inviting people to come and look. He is writing and he's saying, look at this. Pay attention to this. He's inviting you in. This chapter might rightly be titled, The Faces of Sin. He's saying, guys, look At the befores and the afters. See the damage. The the before and afters are all over in this chapter. Look at verse 2. He says, The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. He says these these precious people, these sons of Zion, they were like gold. Valuable. Valuable. Shiny, nice, and now they're like clay pots that have just been melded in a fire. So they've gone from gold to clay, that is before and after. Verse 5, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. They were rich, they had it all, it was luxurious, and now they're dying in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. There they were dressed in the royal robes, and now in sackcloth, unable to do anything but starve. Verses 7 and 8, he says, her princes were whiter than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Here we have this beautiful picture of these attractive princes. With all of the trappings and and accoutrements of royalty. Verse 8: Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. This, perhaps, is the most compelling picture uh, that we have so far that calls to mind those faces of meth pictures that we looked at at the beginning, right? Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become dry as wood. They've gone from these normal-looking people to these people with their faces sunken in, with sores and dry skin, and they look like they've aged decades. He also compares the people to animals. Verse 3, he says, Even the jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. Uh, Commentators say that he points out ostriches because apparently, I didn't know this, ostriches are not very good mothers. I did not know this, but apparently ostriches are very careless with their eggs. They'll lay the eggs and then just leave them, and oftentimes the eggs get stolen, and it seems like the mothers do not care at all. So if you ever want to insult someone, call them an ostrich, That'll be That'll be free for you today. You can take that and put it into practice. You ostrich. So they're compared here to animals. Um, and, And the picture that is given here is a stark contrast between what was good is now deplorable and evil and wicked. This is a brutal, awful scene. So what does this tell us? Here's point number one. Lament uses the devastating effects of sin as a warning. Lament uses the devastating effects of sin as a warning to anyone who's looking, anyone who's watching. Psychologists tell us that in order to truly mourn something, first you must accept it. You know, the stages of grief, acceptance. You you must be able to see the fullness of it without minimizing it, so that you can properly grieve it. You cannot grieve something fully until you've accepted something fully. What we've seen so far in this series is that lament does exactly that. It looks at the fullness of the damage, and it mourns it. It, it grieves it. It doesn't drive us into the shadows of shame. It drives us out into the light where God looks with us at the ugliness, without the ugliness destroying us. And it's that second part that's so relevant to what we're talking about today. Lament serves as a warning to us so that we will not be destroyed by sin in the same way that the people of Jerusalem were destroyed by sin. Part of the lie that Satan gets us to believe is that our sin and its damage won't be that bad. When, when he draws us into sin, part of the lie, part of the, the hidden hook is that, you know what, it's not going to be that bad. And, and we begin to justify, we begin to, to paint a picture in our own minds where we say, well, well maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get away with it. Maybe no one will have to know. Maybe this can stay secret. Maybe no one will have to find out. Maybe I can pull this off. And maybe if I do get caught, maybe I'll just get a slap on the wrist. Maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe some bad things will happen, but but maybe not that bad, right? So Satan pulls us in with this temptation that, hey, what you're doing, A, is only going to ever affect you. And B, whenever it does come out, if it does, it's not going to destroy everything. We see in this chapter the very opposite of that lie. The the display for us that yes, it is going to be that bad. So bad that people can't even believe it. Verse 12 says no one could believe it, but it happened. Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. The, the people in the surrounding nations knew about God, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't some kind of a secret, all right? And, and we have to remember that in ancient Israel, we have God doing powerful miracles on a regular basis, right? So it's not as if, like in 21st century America, we're talking to people about God and they're like, I have never seen any evidence of God, Back then, people had seen firsthand evidence of God, okay? We're talking about, uh, you know, the Exodus and Jericho's walls falling down and armies being killed by hailstones, like all kinds of stuff. There is evidence on evidence on evidence for the surrounding nations. And so, Jeremiah says that there's this perspective that people have of, well, that's a special city. That's, that is Yahweh's city. No one could ever breach it. No one could ever destroy it. The kings of the earth cannot even believe what's going on. As the rumors are spreading about this Babylonian siege that's taking place over the course of a year and a half, word spreads, and people are like, wait, Jerusalem is falling? The Jeru- Yahweh's Jerusalem is falling? How? There, there's wonder. There, there's amazement. The kings of the earth did not even believe it. nor the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. How could it possibly get this bad? Jeremiah is contrasting the way things were to the way things are now. There is absolutely no confusion about how far the people have fallen. Again, the gold is tarnished. The infants are eaten by mothers. The kings are poor. The priests are desecrated. The stones are scattered. The ones wearing purple are now wearing sackcloth. The impenetrable city has now been overtaken. This is an ugly picture. A terrifying picture. A sobering picture. That lie that satan speaks of you know it's not going to be that bad when this comes out keep going it's not going to be that bad on the other side of this there was a fallout that is unimaginable think about for example the fallout from any of the major church scandals that we've seen in the last several years the men who were perpetrating these scandals behind the scenes probably never imagined the fallout that would happen on the other side. They continued to believe the lie that they were too powerful or they were too important or their ministry was too important or the things that they were doing for God would over would outweigh the things that they were doing for themselves. There, there were so many different forms of justification, and yet in every single one of these scenarios, the fallout on the other side is making people worldwide stand in awe and wonder, how could that happen? How, how could it happen to that guy? How, in this scenario, how the gold has grown dim. How the stones are scattered. It's amazement. Part of the reason that lament is so important is that lament sends a message. Lament is supposed to be a wake up call. It's supposed to be a wake up call, not only for the people who are currently being punished for sin, but also to anyone who is watching. Instead of shielding others from seeing exactly the damage that sin does, lament puts it on blast. Not to keep shame, but to rescue others from meeting the same fate. It is important to examine the wreckage that is done by sin. Rather than sweeping it under the rug or saying, well, you know, holy people don't talk about that kind of let's just let water let's just let it be water under the bridge let's let bygones be bygones let's just forgive and forget no lament says look at the damage everyone look at the damage so that you might not make the same mistake this is one of the reasons why lament is not something that we do in private not merely something i should say That we do in private. Lament is something that we invite others into. Lament is done in community. It should not only be done privately. Lament should be done within a circle of trusted members within the body. We lament together. We invite others into the lament. In part because of the warning against sin that it provides. Now I want to say here... I want to make a special note about gossip, okay? Gossip occurs when you are telling a story that is not yours to tell. So, when I say that we need to lament in community, I do not mean in saying that that we ought to sit around and have prayer request time by saying, "Did you hear what happened to so and so?" Oh my goodness. Let's pray for him. I heard that he did X, Y, Z. Oh, he did? No way. Let's pray for them. That, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, that's, that's gossip. Lament does not do that. Lament tells its own story. Lament invites others into its own story to tell. And so, when you have something to lament... When you are lamenting a story that is your own, you ought to invite trusted people into that lament with you. That is what I mean. Lament is done in trusted community. And so lament paints an ugly picture, an ugly picture that serves as a warning And we specifically see this warning at the end of the chapter in verses 21 and 22, where it says, "'Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins.'" So uh, we have the Edomites here who are also living in rebellion. They are rebelling against God. They are living in idolatry. They are pursuing the same sort of lasciviousness that the Israelites have been. And so Jeremiah looks at Edom and he says, hey, uh, yours is coming. Obviously, where they are now is not in the same stage as Israel. Right now, they're still in the honeymoon. Right now, sin is still fun. Right now, everything's still in the dark. They're getting away with it. It, it, It's the honeymoon phase. It's still a party. And and Lament looks at them and says, Soon, you're going to wake up. Soon, the lights are going to come on. The party's going to be over. The fun doesn't last forever. Soon, you're going to wake up with the nasty hangover. And this is going to be your future. So we see here directly that lament warns others. Remember again that Jeremiah is painting a picture for others to see. The perspective is him telling a story. He's saying, look, observe, see the faces of sin, the faces of meth, the faces of death. See it here. Let me show you what's going on so that you will not do the same thing Part of what we have here is a testimony. And and when I'm uh, I'm talking about lamenting in community and in trusted places and telling our own story, part of what this can look like is the sharing of our own stories, the sharing of our own sin, sitting down with people and saying, here's what happened in my life. Here's some of the decisions that that I made, and, and here's some of the destruction that it led to. Part of that sets us free from the shame that our own sin holds us in, right? Satan wants us to keep our own uh, sins and shortcomings a secret. He he wants us to come in here and act like we're all perfect Christians. Satan wants us to come in here and act like we have it all together. Like we don't have any flaws, we don't have any failures, we don't have any things that, that we're ashamed of. He wants us to act that way because if we don't, then people will see, God forbid someone sees my weaknesses, right? But what lament does is it, it invites others into that sin. It invites others into that weakness, those flaws, those failures, and it says, hey, I am not perfect. Here's how I've failed. Here's how I've fallen. Here's what I learned from that. Here's some of the ways that, that my life was messed up and destroyed by this. And hopefully, by me telling you this story, maybe you won't make the same mistake. Maybe in telling that story, you'll be talking to a person who's in a different stage, an earlier stage, like the Edomites were. The Edomites are still in that honeymoon. And Jeremiah looks at them and says, Wake up. Wake up. I'm telling you, I'm telling you what's coming. Look at the faces of meth. This is what's coming. Stop using it. Stop doing it. Maybe in lamenting, maybe in telling your story, you will be communicating with some Edomites. And maybe in telling your story to them, maybe they will stop and wake up and give their lives to the Lord and repent before it's too late. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, how then do we follow the warning of lament? Well, thankfully, Jeremiah helps us to answer that question as well. So here's point number two. Lament points us to truth and calls us to obey it. Lament calls us to obey it. Verse three, I'm sorry, verse 13 tells us that the central problem, why is all this happening? What has led to this? The central problem was a priesthood that no longer spoke the truth of the gospel. Verse 13, all of this before and after, the faces of death, faces of sin, he says, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. He, put, he, he takes this and he puts it squarely on the shoulders of of the priests and the prophets, the leaders, the teachers. Um, Once again, I point us to chapter 2, verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Rather than speaking the truth of God's word, rather than being faithful to what God had commanded them Instead, they filled the temple with idolatry. They filled the temple with pagan worship practices. It says, Shedding in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. They have replaced the truth of God for a lie. And there was a dangerous echo chamber that was created between them and the people. Because the people began to rebel against God, right? The people began to fall into idolatry. And instead of calling the people to repent, the priesthood just joined the rebellion. They joined the idolatry. And they went as far as telling them that God was okay with what they were doing. Right? We just read that in chapter 2. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Rather than calling the people to repent, they're saying to the people, Ah, it's okay. We're not going to talk about sin. That would be uncomfortable. We'll join you. This then leads the people to continue to excuse their sin, by saying that the priest, and therefore God, had approved it. And so the people and the priesthood are feeding off of each other in this vicious cycle until the truth is gone completely. And it continues and continues and continues until, even in the midst of the temple, offerings to false idols are being made. And so part of the lesson for us here is that we need to make sure we do not place ourselves in the same kinds of echo chambers. We need to make sure that we are submitting ourselves to biblical teaching, that we are under biblical teaching and we're submitting ourselves to it on a daily basis before a crisis comes. Sin does not destroy a city overnight. It is a slow progression It is one step at a time down a slippery slope until you get to a point of no return. And so here's a place where we need to examine ourselves and ask, are there things in my life that ought not be there? Are there ways that I have placed myself in an echo chamber only listening to those who agree with me? Only listening to teachers who agree with me? Or maybe not even listening to anyone at all. Because there's some secret sin that no one knows about that you think you'll be able to handle. Lament says, hold up. Now is the time you need to give yourself to the Lord before destruction comes. Or else you also will have this terrible before and after. You will be a mugshot in the faces of sin. You will live this Out. One of the things that we have to realize as believers is that the world is watching. We read verse 12 before, but I'll read it again. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. The world is watching. And they're amazed at the downfall of what they thought was the holy city of God. Again, they they know all the stories. They know the powerful ways that God has displayed over and over that he is Lord over all the earth. And yet, here is his city destroyed. This, This tells us that the destructive consequences of sin cause people to question the truth about who God is. Every single one of us needs to realize that we are not representing ourselves. My story is not my story. My life is not my life. I don't live for me. Whatever I do is going to fall on him. That's how people are going to see it. Even if I don't want that, even if I say, well, I don't don't represent God in this way, that's exactly how people are going to see it. If you are a follower of Christ, whatever you do is going to reflect positively or negatively on God. Like it or not, we are part of this community. We are part of his family. We bear his name. And so how we live is going to tell a story to a world that is watching. And so lament warns us. Lament says to us, Make sure you realize that there is a world out there that is observing you. There are people that are observing you. Now, I don't want you to think that this means if you make a mistake, then it's all over. Okay? In fact, if you do make those mistakes, what lament tells us to do is repent and welcome God in because when God restores and when God does a redeeming work, the world sees that too. I don't want you to think that your sin makes your story over. As long as you are giving yourself to the Lord in repentance, and he is redeeming and rebuilding, the world will watch as something that seemed hopeless becomes filled with hope. And that becomes your story to tell as well. And so maybe you're in a time of life where you're trying to rebuild something that you've broken. Lament tells us that is possible. Lament shows us the path. There's hope that's spoken in the last couple of verses here where he says in verse 22 The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Jeremiah is looking at people who are suffering because of the consequences of their sin. And he's not reducing that, but he's saying, Listen, the punishment isn't going to last forever. The Lord will keep you in exile no longer. If we look back in chapter 3 from last week, he said in verse 31, The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. There is hope for every one of us, regardless of what our sin has been. And so lament calls others to see the fullness of it. verse 6 it says the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah says this is worse than the punishment of Sodom. As you know God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed the city in a blaze of glory, right? The people died instantly. The punishment of Jerusalem, on the other hand, is prolonged. It is drawn out. The people are left to wither away slowly. Again, this is a year and a half long siege that the city is surrounded by the Babylonians and the Israelites are running out of food. They're running out of supplies. They are so hungry that they're resorting to cannibalism. Verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And Jeremiah also says that when Sodom was destroyed, the surrounding nations didn't care. Right? It's, he says, No hands were wrung for her. But as Jerusalem is slowly brought to its knees, the inhabitants of the world are marveling at this. Why would God make it worse for his own people than for Sodom? Because his own people know better. They know the truth, they're held to a higher standard. We together know the gospel. Therefore, we are called to a higher standard. And what lament does for us is it shows us the true depth of the consequences of our actions. It shows us the true cause and effect. It rips the lid off the lie that I was talking about earlier where Satan tries to tell us, hey, don't worry, it won't be that bad. Lament says, yes, it is. Look and see. I invite you to observe just how bad it can get. So, what is, what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is to say that we, as a body of believers, have been called to a life of righteousness and holiness. And when we sin, and we will, when we do, we cannot isolate ourselves in the shadows. We cannot take the sins that we've committed and try to hide them or hide their effects. Lament calls us to say, I got to own this sin. I got to invite others into this. I got to bring the community into this so that I might not be destroyed. And for those of us that have met some form of destruction and and we're living out the consequences, lament shows us there's still hope and God is not going to leave us in the wreckage forever. He will redeem. He will rebuild. And we do this in community. We do this in conjunction. We lament over sin. We mourn it and we use it as a warning so that others might not fall into it. As well, we accept the grace of God and we tell our story, inviting others in so that they may not meet the same fate. We are called to be rescuers in that way. And so, regardless of what your um, life looks like, if you are living a holy and righteous life, good, please continue. Walk in that. If you are living in any kind of form of habitual sin, lament says, stop, give yourself to the Lord, see what happens. And if you're living in the aftermath of sin that you've already committed, lament says, invite people into that. Invite others into that story so that they can see what God does with it as God redeems and rebuilds you. And maybe he can use you to save somebody else from meeting the same fate. I I mentioned earlier that there is another stage to the before and after photos, right? Uh, The reason I ended with that picture of Sean Weiss, I always call him Goldberg. I I can't not call him Goldberg. The reason I ended with that picture of, uh, of Sean Weiss is to say that even after The destructive effect of his addiction, there was hope. There was an actor whose name I can't remember off the top of my head that found him and for over two years walked with him through rehab, was there every day with him through every step of the journey, Uh, led others to support him, raised money for new teeth, So on and so forth. This guy was with Sean Weiss through it all. And now, Sean Weiss is no longer one of the faces of meth. Sean Weiss is returning into the entertainment industry. He's living in sobriety. He's two years sober. And he has hope for a future. Of course, we hope that there is someone who comes along and tells him the truth about Jesus so that he has eternal hope. But for now, in this life, he is a testament to the fact that The faces of meth are not permanent. Lament tells us that the face of sin is not one that has to define your story forever. If you would give yourself over to the Lord, you too will have hope. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for inviting us in to the lament of Jeremiah, for showing us the fullness of the wreckage God, I pray for any person who is watching or listening right now, who is here right now today. Lord, if there are people who have never welcomed you in before, surrendered their hearts, God, I pray that right now you would draw them to yourself. That they would surrender, that they would call out to you and say, I need you, Lord, to rebuild. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who is living with some form of secret sin, that the warning of lament would be a stark, jarring, alarming bell ringing that says to them, now is the time to surrender and submit. And that they would come out of the shadows, find a trusted person in this church and invite them into the lament. So that they too might be rescued and redeemed. Lord, I pray each one of us would begin to live with the truth of how our actions affect ourselves and others. That we would consistently tell the right story. The story of the gospel. That we turn our eyes and our minds upward in the midst of it. And that as the world watches, they will see hope and peace and truth. And love and justice. And that they'll want it for themselves because it's so beautiful. God, as we sing this closing song in worship, I pray that your spirit would do its work in each of our hearts. That whatever decision any of us need to make, Lord, that you would make that clear to us. And that you'd give us the courage and the boldness to surrender to you in whatever way you ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.